Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, where we bring you extraordinary tales of resilience and triumph in the face of unimaginable odds. I'm Casey McIntosh. Joined with me today is my co-host, Julie Henningsen. Today we have an... Sorry, I should have let you introduce that. Say hello. Hello, Julie Henningsen. How are you? Doing great, Casey. Happy to be here. I'm excited to hear what you've got for us today. What I have for you today was inspired by a listener who reached out to us on Instagram. So high five to love that the, person. Yeah, I love the listener input. Yeah, it's awesome. Today, we have a story that will leave you in awe and remind you of the incredible strength of the human spirit, as always. We're going to delve into the incredible journey of Warren McDonald, a man who defied the odds and survived after being trapped under a boulder for two harrowing days on the isolated Hinchbrook Island. His story is a testament to the unwavering will to survive. Truly, it is. The enduring power of friendship and the spirit that drives us to overcome some of the most daunting challenges. Stay tuned as we take you for a journey that you will not soon forget. And by the way, as I was reading for this episode, I uh, must have taken it to heart because I had dreams all night of being stuck under a boulder. Oh gosh, that must be a, that doesn't sound fun at all. No. So our story begins in April of 1997. Once upon a time in the midst of the spectacular Great Barrier Reef, there stood an island surrounded by rugged peaks, completely isolated and devoid of any roads. This place was a hidden gem known to few and it had a secret to reveal. Warren, an avid environmentalist and activist, who had always dreamed of conquering these majestic peaks, decided to make a little trip. Living nearby, he was no stranger to the island's allure. He planned on heading to the island of Hinchinbrook, a well-kept secret of an island where only a solitary ferry made the crossing once a day. It was a sanctuary guarded by nature with no roads or human inhabitants. Warren was a solo hiker, someone who cherished the isolation and the thrill of doing something that very few dared to do. He enjoyed the quiet time and the solitude. And you said he, he's an Australian himself? Mm-hmm. On this mysterious island, there was only one established trail, but the rest of it is untamed wilderness. Warren had spent a lot of time as a solo hiker and adventurer, so this isn't something that was out of the ordinary for him to do by himself. At the time of our story, Warren was 32 years old. He had been working as a painter in Arley Beach, and he had never spent any time on Hinchinbrook Island, which is a part of the Great Barrier Reef. But he'd always wanted to. In an article for ABC News, Warren said, quote, I've always explained Hinchinbrook as a bit like Jurassic Park. You've got this narrow channel with this pretty wild place just across on the other side of the channel. I just looked at it on Google Maps. It's uh, It does look like it's pretty close to the mainland, and it's a national park. That's uh, up in the northern part. Pretty big island. Yeah, and it also looks just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, agreed. Hinchinbrook Island is a place of rugged beauty, boasting towering pe peaks such as Mount Bowen, which stands at an impressive 1,121 meters or 3,678 feet above the sea level. There are other notable summits, including the Thumb, Mount Diamantia, and Mount Strahlock, and they're about 3,000 feet or 900 meters. 
This island is a true wilderness area, providing sanctuary to a number of endangered species in its diverse ecosystem. This island's unique environment encompasses a rich variety of habitants from dense shrubs and lush bushlands and forests. Along the western coast, you'll find one of the most diverse mangrove forests in the country, with 31 different species of mangroves. And the mangroves extend for 50 square kilometers or 19 square miles and are home to a lot of different animals. Hinchinbrook Island's climate is tropical. It features warm to mildly cool dry winters and warm to hot, humid summers and a monsoon wet season that aligns with the top tropical cyclone season. And to the west lies the Hinchinbrook Channel, which we described before, which was once a valley flooded by the Herbert River after the last glacial period. And the east boasts the Coral Sea Great Barrier Reef Lagoon and the renowned Great Barrier Reef. So, of course, there's a lot of different animals that inhabit the island and different insects and things like that that you might not want to cross paths with. There's sea turtles on the outside of the island. There's something like 31 different types of frog species. And around in the water, you might see dolphins, humpback whales. Obviously, there's other things like crocodiles and on on the surface of the island, you could also find poisonous snakes, but in terms of the animals and wildlife that were described, crocodiles seem like the greatest risk if you're near the shore, but they also have box jellyfish, um, which we talked about on a prior episode, how dangerous they are. Of course, when you're thinking about the island itself and the land mass, it doesn't sound like there's any major predators that are going to come after you aside from potentially some poisonous snakes and some unfriendly insects that probably won't kill you. When I think of Australia, I definitely think of like the most venomous snakes and marine life and, and all kinds of things that we don't have to worry about here in North America, but are definitely a consideration down under. Right. I mean, it's just one more thing that you have to consider when you're going out into the wilderness, I think in areas like this, that Again, we just take it for granted a little bit. We have bigger, more vicious predators here, and <laughs> you're going to know that it's coming for you, whereas sometimes you might be caught off guard by some of these things in Australia or in other rainforest-type areas. That's true. How often do you and I worry about like a grizzly bear coming after us? Not very often. We're out there all the time, just bringing the bear spray. <laughs> right. Well, and maybe that's how people in these areas feel too. It's just you're used to whatever risks there are and you're not thinking about it. My friend who has a condo just near where we live sent me a picture yesterday of this car that was completely ravaged by a bear, like completely mm -hmm. annihilated. Someone must have had food in it or something. And the door was, it looked like the door had been torn off of this vehicle. So she said, FYI, don't leave food in your car. Make sure to lock <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder. My husband sent me a video yesterday of, he was out hunting and a video of a mama bear and two cubs running, fortunately running away from him. And our thought was, oh, how cute, which I know that's not maybe what a lot of other people's first thought would be. So during our story, which again was April, 1997, I'm just giving you an idea of what the temperatures were around this time. The climate data that I had 
was for the past 12 years. So it may have been a little bit cooler at this point, but the daytime temperatures were averaging 27 degrees Celsius and the nighttime temperatures around 20 degrees Celsius. And during the month of April, it wasn't the rainiest time of year. They get about seven days of rain in the month of April. Just keep in mind, this area is remote and there's only one ferry crossing a day, at least in this time, from Cardwell. Warren hopped on the ferry and hiked all day until he reached Little Ramsey Bay. And when he arrived at the beach, he met a man who was sitting restfully on the beach sketching in an art notebook. Like low-key hippie vibes going on there by the water. Sounds nice. Yeah, right? This is where he meets his new friend, Hirt Van Kulen, a 39-year-old photographer slash painter who's hiking for artistic inspiration. He was traveling from Holland. The two men quickly struck up conversation and had an instant friend connection. Hirt asked Warren if he would like to climb Mount Bowen in the morning. The view was supposed to be fabulous, and Warren agrees. They look over a map and start planning their route, expecting it's going to take about two days in total to complete this hike. The mountain is not an easy climb because there's dense undergrowth and vines. And remember, no tra- there's only one trail on this island, and it doesn't take you up that mountain. So this is essentially bushwhacking, as we like to say in the U.S. You're just going through unrelenting plant matter. In order to walk more swiftly, the two decide to follow some creek beds toward the mountain. There's quite a few creek beds. Geert notes that Warren is a natural. He's hopping from one rock to another like it's nothing. He clearly is athletic and feels comfortable navigating in the outdoors. After many hours of climbing that require obviously lots of energy, they finally realize they're going the wrong direction. So they're not overly concerned about it. The moment they didn't really think that they were lost, but they had to redirect. So they're spending a bunch of time going in another direction to try to right their wrong until the sun goes down and they're finding themselves unable to make any further advancement just because it's too dark. They set up a resting spot on a ledge by a creek bed. And after dinner, Warren needs to urinate and he wanted to keep the water clean. He's just being mindful. He wants to urinate somewhere other than the creek. So he's going out of his way to get to a place where he can urinate away from the water. And keep in mind, all of the areas behind where they're camped out are just thick with bush and other plants. And so it's not like you can just walk into the woods and pee. I get the impression that he didn't have a headlamp or very much light. And he's going barefoot. He walks and feels his way across the creek bed. At one point, he reaches his foot to this large rock. And under his weight, he hears a loud cracking sound. And before he knew what was happening in the dark night, a large one-ton-sized boulder slams him down on the creek bed on his back, crushing his legs. Oh, that's horrible. So this boulder, was it like falling from somewhere or it became dislodged and him moving over it? I think he he dislodged the rock by putting his little bit of weight on it. I mean, relative to a ton, um, you know, obviously he didn't weigh very much, but it was just enough to unlodge this rock that maybe was sitting in a perilous position. And I get the impression the rock he was walking, I guess it was above him. I mean, it would have had to be. So... The momentum 
just the direction that he was going to go was down and the boulder was just coming right on top of, right on top of him. So he was in the creek and the boulder ended up on top of his legs. Right. Oh, that's horrible. I'm picturing it in my mind. Cold water, nighttime, a ton of rock on your legs. <laughs> well, and here's the thing too, that I was thinking about is that this came out of nowhere. Certainly he heard this sound, but there was really not very much time to contemplate what was going on and he couldn't see anything. So, I mean, it would have been similar to getting hit by a car in the night that didn't have headlights on or something like that, where there's no knowledge even of what's happening until it's done. Yeah. This moment of like, what is going on here? Am I being attacked by an animal? Is somebody coming at me somehow viciously, like just not having a frame of reference for what's going on? Yeah. So first you get the terror and then you get the unrelenting, horrible, worse than you could ever imagine pain of your legs being crushed and not mm -hmm. being able to relieve that pain because that rock is not going anywhere. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. So Geert uh, knew that something terrible had occurred, obviously, when he hears Warren's shouts of pain. And when he arrives, he finds Warren pinned under this granite slab. The two men are pushing at the rock to no avail. And Warren is in pain and desperation, but he has a moment of clarity and he starts directing Geet to create a lever. And as if on cue, the rain began to pour, making their struggle even more challenging. So as if you need anything to make this worse, now everything is wet, including the rock, including mm -hmm. all of the sticks or logs that you could use as levers. Everything's wet and slippery. So Geert scavenged for a tree, cutting it down with a Swiss army knife, which you can imagine would be a pain staking process. Like how long do you think it takes to cut down a small diameter tree with a Swiss army knife? Yeah. Like, what's your like, estimation? Two hours? I, I mean, at least I was going to say more than that with a knife. What do you, I mean, are you sawing it with a little dull blade? <laughs> yes. Are yes. you poking at, you're jabbing at it from all different <laughs> angles? I can't even imagine like where to start with that as your tool. We should do an experiment I'd, sometime just for fun. I'd be tempted to just get in there and nod at like a beaver. <laughs> Might be more efficient. Well, I'm sure the adrenaline helped with that. But as he was working, he accidentally injured his hand. He cut right through the palm of his hand. And he didn't even know that he did it. He just had so much adrenaline. He didn't even recognize the fact that he had injured himself. So this is going on. The relentless brain is showing absolutely no mercy. And Warren's precarious position meant that he potentially could be submerged if it rained enough because he's sitting in a creek bed. Which yeah, I was talking about terrifying his, his body position. And hopefully, is shallow enough that he's at least for now able to keep his airway above the water level. Yeah, I mean, at this point, yes, he was. Warren was not immediately thinking that there was no way out of this rock. He was wondering, how am I going to get out of here after the rock is removed? You know, he's picturing his legs being broken. How on earth are you going to get out of here? Even with a trail, you know, there's. There's no trail in this situation, but if there was, it would still be extremely difficult. And, you know, you've got the creek beds, you've got all these trees and vines and horrible underbrush. So that's where his mind was going at that moment. So with the tree that Geet eventually was able to... Okay. Okay. So Heert finally scavenged this tree. He was finally able to cut it down and they were using that as a lever... They were pushing 
and forcing it with every single ounce of strength that they had. And all they could do was move it about one inch and they just settled that rock right more, more on top of Warren. Oh gosh, that's tough. They had been hoping for that miraculous burst of strength, like those stories of people lifting cars off of people. Yeah. In times of crisis, you know, no such miracle came in this situation. And the tree that they were using as the lever ultimately just broke. Mm. It was, and it was the largest one they could find. And they knew that all of future attempts at that point would be futile. Like this was not moving. Yeah. I think they got their miracle in the form of being able to cut down a tree with a Swiss army knife. <laughs> it might've been the end of their good luck right there. At least for this time. Yes. In the midst of their dire situation, Warren and Hirt shared a silent but profound understanding of the gravity of their predicament. Fear began to creep in as they huddled together in the rain-soaked wilderness. Warren is normally a resilient outdoorsman. He let out a few moans and cries, but these were the only sounds of distress or complaint that reached Hirt's ears during this whole ordeal, aside from maybe when he first was yelling out for help when the boulder initially fell on top of him. The rain finally relented and Hirt put his arm around Warren and they clung to hope that something would come to their rescue. They didn't want to think about the alternative, but ultimately they knew that in order to save Warren's life, Hirt would have to leave Warren behind in that desolate riverbed. It sounds like at this point, Hirt was staying in the river with him to stay by his side. Yeah. It's kind of helping from the dry shore. Right. Yeah. I think he spent quite a bit of time by him during the evening, but I don't know if he actually got any sleep or not. By morning, after a full 10 hours from the time where the boulder had trapped Warren, Hirt uh, starts to get his stuff together to head out by himself. The first light of day, of course, reveals the shocking reality of being able to fully visualize Warren under this rock, looking pale and vulnerable. Mm, yeah. Right before Hirt left, he was struggling make, to make eye contact with Warren. I think it was just a very difficult time. Of course, there's no guarantees of anything. He knew he had to set out alone, leaving Warren behind, and as Warren watched Hirt walk away, anxiety gripped him. I think part of him too was between the two of the men, um, Warren was maybe a little bit more athletically inclined. And so I'm sure watching his newfound friend walk away, this is a difficult hiking experience. It's not like you're just walking down the path back to where you started. So there's no guarantees that he's going to make it in the amount of time needed to actually save Warren's life. In the face of impending peril, Warren had this profound shift in perspective. He had once entertained the notion that there might be a certain allure in perishing in the great outdoors, but now as he's trapped beneath that colossal boulder, he reconsidered that sentiment, as one would. Right. It doesn't sound so romantic now, I bet. No. Meanwhile, Hirt battled his own set of challenges. He was hurrying through the unforgiving terrain. He was slipping and falling. At one point, he fell completely into a pool of water. He had to remind himself to move cautiously. Then at one point, he plunged headfirst into a green ant nest and within seconds was covered in six-leg assailants just going after him. 
and he had to leap into another creek at that point to get them off. Warren was still trapped, obviously. He decided to put some of his thoughts down in a notebook, which um, Hirt had left for him when he when they had parted ways. He put some of his final thoughts down in a notebook, possibly his last words. As the clock ticked and the day wore on, a heavy rainfall came more forcefully, which created a more ominous atmosphere. In the spot where Warren sat, it became dark and cloudy and he began to hallucinate and he had intense episodes of nausea. He couldn't eat because he just couldn't hold anything down. And at that point, he knew that time was running out. Hirt, on the other hand, as he's ongoing, he just can't rest. He tried to sleep over the course of the night for a few hours, but really didn't get any sleep. And he was becoming so exhausted that he was just being careless. He was having a hard time lifting his feet all the way so he wouldn't trip. And at one point he sat down to empty his boots of water and looked down at his feet and he was wearing socks that he'd borrowed from Warren. And that helped reignite his focus and remember the reason that he was walking out to begin with. Which it's so wild that these two hikers really had only known each other for 24 hours at this point. Right? I know. It's crazy. By mid-morning, day two, Warren observed a reddish tint in the water and his heart sank as he realized there was a freshwater crayfish that was nibbling at his foot. Oh, and he probably couldn't even feel it. He could not feel it. So that was part of the terror. He used a stick to fend this crayfish off, but part of it was that he had no idea how long it had been going on. 35 long hours had elapsed since the boulder had first pinned Warren down. Hirt, now at the base of the mountain, was off course and had a few hours to cover 10 miles to make it to the ferry on time. Oh. He was exhausted and depleted. He pushed forward, and when he finally reached the beach, he began vomiting. Mm. When he finally reached the point where the ferry would dock... That was 1.5 days after he left Warren. He encountered the ferry operator who noticed the desperate look in his eyes. Without hesitation, the ferry operator, who was called Goody, found an old crab fisherman who had a radio and they called for rescue services. Oh, he was a Goody. He earned his name. <laughs> he was a Goody. Warren, in the throes of his own ordeal, noticed ominous spots on his right foot a clear indication that his situation was deteriorating even further. Ominous spots. And like gangrene going on? Yeah, necrosis. necrosis. Mm. Yeah. He was aware that he might lose his foot, but he didn't allow himself to really ponder that thought too much just because it wasn't helping him in his will to survive. You know, he was going through these crazy ups and downs emotionally from one moment thinking, I'm going to make it. This is going to be fine. I can hold on to the, next, to the next minute, just feeling like it was completely futile and that he was just waiting to die. It was a very emotional experience. As Hirt waited to, for rescue services, he was gazing up and then imposing Mount Bowen. A helicopter finally touched down. The rescuers on board were inquiring about Warren's whereabouts and his condition, the situation looked bleak. Warren, on the verge of giving up, had been waiting, wondering if something had befallen Hirt, but the sound of the approaching helicopter jolted his attention, and he had a burst of energy at that point and hope. 
Miraculously, the rescuers were able to locate Warren and they knew that he was far from being out of danger, even if he was still alive. Daniel Portifax, rescuer crewman, knew that they would need heavy hydraulic lifting equipment to move the boulder. And so they had that on board. At that point, Hirt was asked to leave and he had to wait a second helicopter on the beach. Of course, with this terrain, there's no place to land a helicopter. So they had to lower the rescuers down by a wire, as well as the hydraulic equipment. At this point, Warren was teetering between consciousness and unconsciousness, and rescuers were shocked when they approached him because initially they thought that Warren was dead. He was lying there lifeless. Chip, an EMT, was concerned about Warren's low blood pressure. They started fluids right away. The removal of the boulder took a grueling 2.5 hours, and Warren's condition remained critical. Aside from his blood pressure being low, Chip was also worried about releasing toxins into Warren's bloodstream from the necrotic tissue with the removal of the boulder, and they ended up giving him a dose of adrenaline. Mm, and I imagine if he was crushed with that weight on him and, you know, just the idea of when that weight is lifted, that could also plummet his blood pressure. Well, yeah. So many complexities with that. What I was thinking about is, could you have some internal bleeding that was compressed by the boulder? And the second that you remove the boulder, that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Could that exactly. have been possible? Like removing, yeah, like removing an impaled object. It just opens up the floodgate. Right. It was 9 p.m. when Warren was wheeled into the Karen's base hospital. And shortly thereafter, he spoke to a surgeon that told Warren that unfortunately they were going to have to amputate his legs above the knee, both of them. Mm -hmm. He was extremely upset about the news and he cried himself to sleep. It was a really hard pill to swallow, as I would imagine it would be for anyone. Yeah. Hirt finally managed to get through to the hospital and speak to Warren on the phone. And that's when he heard the devastating news about the loss of Warren's legs. But thankfully, he was able to visit Warren in the hospital. Hirt struggled with Warren's fate due to guilt relating to just inviting Warren to go on the hike to begin with. You know, he had survivor's guilt and that went on for quite some time. Uh, approximately one month after this incident, following a series of surgeries, Warren was able to return to his hometown in Melbourne to commence his rehabilitation journey. His primary focus during this period was to rebuild his strength. And in less than a year, he showcased his newfound strength by successfully completing the Pure to Pub Swim, which is a 1.2 kilometer event in Lauren, Victoria on January 10th, 1998. And surprisingly, he even surpassed his own swimming record from a decade prior to that accident. That's so cool. And then he started wondering, can a person with no legs conquer a mountain? So that was kind of the next thing. It led to 10 months of training and he ended up going to climb Tasmania's Cradle Mountain. He described the sensation atop Cradle Mountain as immensely powerful, almost like being electrified. It was a moment of reclaiming that love for the outdoors, and he realized that he could have that part of his life back, which he thought maybe was lost forever. He also went to conquer Federation Peak in Tasmania a year later, and in 2003, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro as the first ever double above the knee amputee to reach the summit. Nice. Yeah. And furthermore, Warren has become an accomplished author and renowned motivational speaker. 
Today, he lives in Canada with his partner, Margot, who's an avid ice climber. Over the years following the accident, Warren has maintained a connection to Hirt. They've even gone camping together, a place in Arizona, while Hirt was cycling across the U.S. So it's really awesome that they maintain that connection. Yeah, it's incredible. And hopefully Hirt realized that he saved his life. He might have lost his legs, but he saved his life. I know. That's a big weight to carry around, I'm sure. Just that thought of guilt. But you're right. He did save a life. And had he not been there, I mean, he used to say that Warren hadn't, wouldn't have gone to climb that peak by himself. I mean, that would be certainly a devastating end. Absolutely. Despite the undeniable challenges of living without legs, Warren has embraced his life as it is, and he believes that he's gained an invaluable wealth of experience and wisdom from this experience, and almost to the point where he wouldn't trade his legs for all of the changes and the way that he perceives life after the fact. We hope that we don't have to go through these horrible experiences to get that perspective, but it definitely does change the way that you live, I would imagine. Right. As we wrap up another episode of the Crux True Survival Stories, we want to express our heartfelt gratitude and to our dedicated listeners. Your support is what keeps us going, and we truly appreciate it. Remember, you can always reach out to us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram at the Crux Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or even your own survival stories. If you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review. Sharing your favorite episodes with a friend is another fantastic way to spread the word about our podcast. Don't forget sharing our posts on your Instagram stories can help others discover the crux. Um, Until we meet again next week, keep seeing adventure, have fun and enjoy every moment in between. Anything to add, Julie? Thanks for the story today, Casey. That's a, that was a powerful one. I can see why you had some, some nightmares about it after researching that. Yeah. No, you just think about what that experience would be like and being dependent and reliant on someone else and completely Mm -hmm. powerless. Yeah. All right. Hope you all have a wonderful week and until next time, farewell. Have a good week.